of you are coaches or parents who have tried to teach your son or daughter or somebody else's son or daughter a sport, a hobby, or a skill and found it incredibly enjoyable. Two of you. I mean, you know what it's like when you're trying to teach them something. You're trying to help them understand a, a skill or a sport. You, you want them to develop that. You want it to be enhanced. And you know you're the one to do that. And if you're coaching them or if you're a parent, you know that it can be incredibly exhilarating and sometimes overwhelmingly frustrating, right? It can be a lot of fun. and Sometimes it can take the wind right out of your sails. You know as well as I do, when you're trying to help them through that process, you've got to do everything you can to give them all the mechanics, give them as much information as you can, but at some point you've got to let them do it, right? You've got to let them hit the ball, swing the bat, squeeze the trigger, or get their hands dirty. Two things about that. If indeed you're going to teach them that skill, whatever it may be, whether it's a skill or a hobby or a sport, it's more than just the phrase, hit the ball. It's more than just the phrase, squeeze the trigger. More than just the phrase, fix the car. They've got to understand the mechanics. They have to see it modeled. They have to know how to do it. They have to see someone else do it. They need as much information as they possibly can. You've got to give them all the basics. And yet, at some point, there's something inside of them that has to take over, right? I mean, it, they cannot be anything they want to be, right? And we say that, we tell them that, but they really can't be anything they want to be. In some cases, there is something inside, every once in a while, a few of them that just takes off and allows them to really focus well on that particular skill or sport or hobby. And others that enjoy it, and they'll keep finding what it is they want to do until that one clicks with them. To be able to do it well, they've got to have all the mechanics, they need all the information, they've got to see it modeled, and then something inside has to take over. You know, I love trap shooting. And I enjoy it on a regular basis, and it's interesting going for the very first time and watching these other guys walk you through the mechanics, tell you what you're supposed to do, keep both eyes open. I've been closing one eye when I've been shooting for 45 years, and now for the last few years they said you've got to keep both eyes open, never look at the end of the gun, watch this bird as it goes out, and all the things they do that you're trying now to process when you've been doing it 45 years the other way. You're trying to learn all the mechanics, and then once you get it down, there's something inside of you that just seems to take over. You don't know how it happens. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it really amazes you as how well you do. Yesterday I had the opportunity to participate with Hosanna Industries, a, a great ministry in the Pittsburgh and Butler area that helps people with rehab and build their homes and to get them back on their feet again. It's a great opportunity to see what God can do through your physical skills. And every couple, time, every couple times a year, they have a, a benefit shoot. And so I went down, and there was a group of ladies who decided to have a, a ladies' team. Here are some of them. Now, again, when you give a lady a 12-gauge shotgun who's never used it before, and you actually load it, you're a little bit nervous. <laughs> right? What was interesting is that I watched, as I watched behind all of these ladies, every one of them, their husbands or fiancés got behind them and was teaching them some skills and talking about the mechanics of what it is that they need to do. And 
They had all seen it modeled. But then there came that point where it was more than just simply squeeze the trigger. They really had to do it. And some of them did it really, really well. One of them who will remain nameless, who's in our audience here this morning, beat me. I mean, what are the odds of that? What are the odds of that? But it was fascinating to watch all the skills, all the mechanics, all the information, everything that was shared. But then that one thing that was inside that just took off and took over and did a phenomenal job. Think with me through the Gospels for a moment. You've got men and women in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who had been with Jesus for three years. They had watched him do everything he could. They spent a lot of time with him. They listened to him. They slept with him. They awoke with him. They ate with him. They ministered with him. They saw the miracles. You imagine in your mind, take the time to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what it was like for those guys to observe Jesus for three years. Think of the things they must have seen him do. Raise the dead. Heal the lame. Restore sight to the blind. Feed 20,000 people with some fish and some bread. Priests powerful sermons. People flock to hear him. They saw everything he did for three years. They saw it all unfold right before their eyes. They saw him on the cross. They saw him be taken to the tomb. They saw the empty tomb. Now they spent the last 40 days in a really intensive Bible study with him. I mean, I don't know who's been the best teacher you've ever heard or the best teacher you've ever spent time with or the best leader of your small group or the best Sunday school teacher you've ever experienced. But can you imagine what it was like to spend three years with Jesus, three years of really intense ministry with Jesus? And not just 11 or 12, but a number of people spent that kind of time with him. Luke and, John, or Luke and Mark both talk about a number of disciples that followed him. And so they spent all that time, and you, you've got to believe they're really well prepared. They know what it's like. They know what it's going to cost. They know what it's going to entail. They know how to see the miraculous done. They know how to preach great sermons. They know how to draw a crowd. They know what it took. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of all of that, after everything they had seen, everything they had experienced, Jesus said to them, wait, still got to have one more thing. I mean, what else could they have needed? What else could they have needed? And then I sat in prayer this morning with a few of our elders in preparation for this morning's message. And I thought, Lord, if you said to these guys, wait until you receive power. Wait until the Spirit of God lands on you. Wait to do ministry until you receive that. How much more do I need to wait? How much more do we need to wait for that moment in our lives when the Spirit of God lands in incredible ways? It gives us the opportunity to do things we could have never imagined possible because God's Spirit came on us. If they needed to wait, i got to believe we do as well. Turn to Acts chapter 1 for a moment and chapter 2. If you have your sermon notes, I encourage you to take them out follow along. We're going to be in Acts 2 for the next couple of weeks or so. It's a Incredible amount of information. Jesus said to them, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem in chapter 1. I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. John baptized with water. In a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 8, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, what he told them to wait for in chapter 1 came. Chapter 2 in the book of Acts is going to introduce us to three of the most important ingredients to the entire book of the book of Acts. The power and fullness of the Spirit, first 13 verses. The beginning of taking the gospel message to everyone, not just a select group, not just to a few, but reaching out to everyone and community life or body life, what the church is to do, what it's to look like, how it's to function in the last few verses, 42 to 47. I want to read the first part this morning. Acts 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came, gathered together in bewilderment because each one was hearing their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they ask, aren't all of these speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Paranthians, Medes, and Amalites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans and Arabs. We heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, of course, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. We're going to see in these verses three things that obviously has taken place, the fulfillment of what Jesus said for them to wait for in Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 8, the results of that fulfillment and the response to that, some of which has become some of the most controversial aspects in the church today. The baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. That, out of all the things that are said in this whole context here, has been one of the most controversial aspects in the church today. Everything from Pentecostals to Presbyterians and everything in between. The baptism of the Spirit between Pentecostal teaching, evangelical teaching, and mainline teaching has been one of the most controversial, sometimes confusing aspects of what it is that God wanted to do in this context, and we're going to share that in these next two weeks together. What we need to remember is that these people had already experienced the Holy Spirit. They'd experienced the power of the Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was actively involved in people's lives. The Spirit was with them. The Spirit came upon them for certain tasks. The Spirit came alongside them in Matthew 10 and Luke 9 and 10. They went out in the power of the Spirit. John chapter 20, after Jesus rose from the dead and met with them in the upper room, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Well, this promise of the Father, here promised in chapter 1, delivered in chapter 2, is not only to be with them, upon them, beside them, it is now to be in them. To consume, to empower, an internal invasion of God's Spirit. Never negates all the ways the Spirit had worked before this. But now it's an added dimension of an internal reality that came at Pentecost. And what comes with this baptism is power. Power for salvation, power for living, power for serving, and available to absolutely everyone. 
One of the fundamental teachings of Christianity is that you cannot by yourself save yourself, right? It's one of the fundamental teachings of Christianity. You cannot by yourself, on your own, save yourself. You can't by your own self-effort become a child of God. It doesn't matter how good you are or how hard you try, you and I don't have the power to redeem or save ourselves. We can't by our own self-effort wipe away our sins, purchase the opportunity to start all over again, and guarantee ourselves eternal life. God has to do all of that, right? We don't have the power to do that. But John 1.12 says this, As many as received him, recognizing that he's the Savior and I need to open my life up and allow him to come in and take control of my life, as many as received him, to them he gives the power to become what? A child of God, even to those who believe on his name. And just by or like by my own self-effort, I can't save myself. I also cannot sanctify myself. I cannot by my own self-effort live a holy Christian life that God wants me to. Now he has to send his spirit to transform my life. Now that I'm a believer in Christ, I've got a whole new set of desires. I really want to live like Christ. I understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I listened to Billy Graham this morning who said there were over 1,050 commands just in the New Testament. I really want to live like Jesus. I understand that now I'm a follower of Christ and I'm identifying myself as a Christian. I want to live like one, right? One of the commands that said, don't take the Lord's name in vain. I've, I've always believed it had much more to do with than swearing that we sometimes think it is. It means if you're going to identify yourself as a believer, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, then you want to live like that. Otherwise, don't take that name in vain if you're not going to live it out. We're not a Christian just because we live in a Christian nation. We're not Christian by name only. We're a Christian when we identify ourselves with Christ. We allow him to come into our life. We acknowledge that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We open our lives up to Him and invite Him in. And then we allow Him to live His life through us. The problem is many people try to do that on their own, by their own self-effort. Try to keep a list of do's and don'ts. I don't want to do this now that I'm a believer. I really know I need to do this. And so I'm going to try really hard to do that. The problem is that doesn't work. He takes us just as we are, but he doesn't expect us to stay that way. The problem is I can't do it on my own. I need his power, and that's what he offers us. So what is the promise of the Father? It's also used in Luke chapter 24 when he said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. I want you to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The promise of the Father is power. Power to do what? To bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. You will be baptized in your sermon notes means to immerse, to engulf, to be overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. And the result of that overwhelming or empowering is to do ministry. The result of His coming upon us is power. To do what in our flesh we cannot do. In your sermon notes, I not only need His power to live the life He's calling me to, I need it to do the task He's calling me to. When Jesus began his ministry, one of the very first sermons that we're familiar with is in Matthew. We call it the Beatitudes. I can't imagine it was in a sermon that was called the Beatitudes. Or he said to his disciples, hey, I've got a great sermon called the Beatitudes. Get everybody here you can. It was one of his very first messages. People gathered. And Jesus tried to help them understand what kingdom living was going to be all about. 
kept saying to them phrases like, the kingdom of God is here. It's right in front of you. Everything you've waited for, everything you've longed for, everything you've heard about from ages gone by is now here. And one of the very first statements he said is, blessed are the broken. Blessed are those who recognize their only hope is God. Blessed are those who mourn, those who get out here what's in here. Who are really honest with themselves and honest with what they need and honest with God. Blessed are the broken who really understand that their only hope is God. And he offered himself to them. Now, he says, just like you can't save yourself, you also can't sanctify yourself, and you can't serve without me. Now, the disciples had heard all of this, heard everything he had said. They heard all the commands. They heard all the words. They heard all the phrases. They heard all the messages. But all through his ministry, they kept arguing over who's the greatest and what they could do. What do you mean we'll run? No, we won't. Thought they could do it on their own power. And so the end of Jesus' ministry, when Peter hits the wall and denied he ever knew Christ, all the while believing he never would. Now they know they can't live the life and serve the master on their own power. And to that group, Jesus comes to them and says, look, now I want you to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, there is no way we can do that. I couldn't even share the gospel with a little gal at a campfire outside Caiaphas' house. And now you want me to take this message that will transform the world to the ends of the globe? There is no way I can do that. That's why Jesus said to them, you've got to wait. You've got to have my power to do that. When it comes upon you, you'll have the power to do what you never realized you could do in your own power. Something you can't crank up, something you can't wind up. It comes from God. It comes to a person willing to allow himself to be used and solely, completely available to God. Look at how it comes in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house as they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on all of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them to Jews and Converts to Judaism, they all heard them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. The rest of the chapter from 14 to 40 is Peter, empowered by the Spirit, preaching a message that he could have never done otherwise. You cannot explain the difference between the Peter of the Gospels and this Peter without a full understanding of what the Spirit of God can do in the life of a person. Look at the results of his message in verse 41 in your Bibles. They accepted, or those who accepted his message were baptized and about three thousand were added to their number that day the difference between peter speaking and communicating in gospels of matthew mark luke and john and this peter are profound touched on it last week the the difference between these two guys can never be explained without a baptism or an infusion or making himself totally available to the spirit of god and the spirit of god landing on The word baptized in verse 4 of chapter 1 becomes the word filling in chapter 2. Chapter 4, verse 8, it said, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with boldness. Chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, spoke with boldness. Luke doesn't point out his intelligent or speaking gifts. He doesn't say Stephen with his great ability to communicate the truth. No, he says Stephen, full 
of the Holy Spirit. That was the identifying mark. The effects of Acts chapter 2 is empowerment. And I believe, to be honest with you, the power to evangelize. Power to do what in the flesh we cannot do. Power to fulfill the Great Commission. If we're ever going to reach Butler with the gospel of Christ, it's got to have power. It's not going to be by methods or programs. It's got to be by the power of God's Spirit. He said in Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Part of the answer when we define the baptism of the Spirit is found in chapter 2 when we see the results of that. And then the people's response to that, chapter 2, exalted to the, as Peter begins to wrap up his sermon, he talks about Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and that's what you now see and hear. Baptism of the Spirit has come. The question that always begs to be asked, is that available to the church today? Is what we see in the book of Acts, confined to the pages of the book of Acts, something to praise God for what he used to do, or is it available to the church today? And my premise is absolutely available to the church today. What we're going to see as we begin to unpack the pages of this book is that it's completely and continually available to the church today. There's been a debate around the terms. Do you have the baptism? Do you have the filling? Are they the same? Are they, the di- are they different? Are there accompanying signs? And I have a great statement in your sermon notes that says we can argue the points We can disagree on terms and signs, but what we need to agree on without the power of the Spirit of God at work in the life of a believer and at work in the life of the church, without that, nothing of value can happen. The work of the Spirit is the essential ingredient. To be honest with you, it's not as important how it comes, if it's called baptism or filling, if it's around or in or upon, dipped or dunked. What I'm telling you, you cannot live the Christian life effectively without it. We get so worried about saying it right or figuring it out that sometimes we miss it all together. Good theology is absolutely critical. But I'd rather be able to, unable to articulate it well and have it than be able to say it just right and not have it. I want to experience the power of God's Spirit. God promised it, and that's what we want, even if I can't completely understand it or explain it well. Jesus said, when it comes, you'll be my witnesses. You'll share the truth. You'll share the life-transforming gospel that changed your life. Spirit won't point to himself. It'll always point to Jesus. It'll mean you'll be a witness of Jesus. Obviously, that requires that you know him and that you've met him. And when you share it, you won't share theology. You'll share the living Christ that has made himself real to you And you can't wait to give away. When the fillings come, do they always look the same? Not always. In Acts 2, the first four verses, you have four things you obviously see there. Fire, wind they could hear, a shaking in languages. In Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 1, the baptism of the Spirit came like a dove as he began his ministry. In Acts chapter 4, there's no wind, no fire, no tongues, but the building shook. They're not evidences of the baptism. The evidence of the baptism is boldness. After Peter's baptism, he preached and 3,000 people got saved because he had a great sermon. No, the power of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen, no wind, no fire, no tongues, no shaking of buildings, but his words were irresistible. It doesn't always happen the same way. You can't always predict it. You can't work it up. I've seen signs for revival on such and such a date, and I've often wondered, how do they know? How could they predict that it's going to land on that day? 
Is there more than one filling? I believe there is. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled, be continually filled with the Spirit. I don't believe we can make it come. but I do believe we can keep it from coming. I grew up in an environment where we were so afraid of things we couldn't understand or predict that we developed a theology to keep a lid on things we didn't understand. My first pastor was Nick, uh, Mel Nicholson, and I, I loved the man. It was probably the best way I could have ever started ministry in all my life. And he constantly used to say that in the CNMA and in other churches like it, we're so afraid of wildfire that we have no fire. We're so afraid of things that we can't fully understand that there's no life at all. Have you ever been to a church where you felt there was a lot of people there but no life and no energy in it? A friend of mine by the name of Dave Busby said, when I read Acts, I see them waiting for the power of the Spirit. Like a boat when, they, when, the, when the direction of the wind is blowing and they wait for that right moment. But as I've traveled around in churches, I see people who, if the wind and the spirits aren't blowing, fire up the engines and move on on their own. I believe God's spirit has the ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, if we allow him. The promise of the Father was not just for the people in the book of Acts. It is for us. People of God who are willing to say, Father, without you, I have no ability to do or live the life you're calling me to. And I cannot be an effective witness to do what you've asked me to do and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. But with you, I am absolutely unafraid to try anything. Luke would say, Theopolis, I don't even know how to define it. I don't even know how to describe it. I'm not even sure if I can fully explain what happened. All I can tell you is that when the power of the living Christ came on these people who had been with him for three years, who had seen him do it all, who had all the mechanics down pat, but failed miserably to do it on their own. But when these people spent them, found themselves before Almighty God and available to him to do whatever he wanted to do, Everything changed. Everything changed. And my prayer for myself and us is that the living Christ will present himself alive as he did to them and empower us to serve, to live, to follow him completely. Can we explain it completely and fully? Not always. Sometimes we're like the old hymn, once I was blind, and now I see. I don't know how. Don't always know when. But I'm telling you, I remember that moment when I made myself so available to God and opened myself up completely to Him that He came and so saturated my life that I was able to live the life He called me to do. And I was able to serve Him in every way. And fear was gone, and boldness took over. And I couldn't wait for the opportunity to share the truth. Was it just for them? Lord, I hope not. I think it's for all of us. Next week, we're going to unpack how. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. It is absolutely captivating. It brings us to places that we have always read about, maybe not fully understood. But I'm so delighted that it's available to us today. Lord, we, we are your children. 
called by your name. And we want to be able to live the life you've called us to. We want to be able to serve you and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we ask as we begin to explore what this means for us, not just for them and not just a history book that we read about in the days of the early church, but as we begin to make ourselves available to you, I trust that you will so take control and take over every single fiber of our being so that we will live the life you've called us to and we will serve you with everything we have. Boldness and confidence to know that what we have received can change a life forever. I'm really glad it wasn't just for them. I'm so grateful that you've included all of us in the family of God into what is available to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for your kind attention. There is so much more power and truth in what it is that God wants to say in this. And we're going to unpack that in the next few weeks and really fully understand what it means and what it looks like. I obviously realize, I don't even until I look up the clock, realize that I left you out early. I know you're disappointed by that. But uh, obviously a lot of our kids are still ministering and our teachers are still ministering to our children. So give them the opportunity to do that. Buy a cup of coffee on me. If you don't have the money, tell them it's on my tab. Have a great day. If I can pray for you in any way, we'd love to do that.